Hello, and welcome to Chris's podcast. I'm your host, Chris. It's a podcast where we sit around and talk about stuff and things with interesting people. Um, You know, bees know how to, like, make the world a more beautiful place. You know, they're not consuming, they're creating constantly. In this episode, I sit down with Bonnie Moore of Bonnie Bee and Company. We delve into her past experiences gardening, working in a family business, and working as a teenager in Africa. After a chance introduction to bees, she and her husband had their lives forever altered. The world of bees took over and changed everything. Bees challenged and shifted her views on previously held opinions. Bonnie's energy and enthusiasm for honeybees and all of life's systems and creatures is infectious. So just get going. All right. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, Well, the whole bee thing started, actually, before we get started, let me go into the office. I'm sorting auction items right now for that Kenyan auction we held last night. What kind of auction? Um, for uh, Marianne Frazier was speaking to the Marin Beekeepers last night, mm-hmm. and she's done a lot of work in Kenya. And one of the oh. villages where they work with the beekeepers, they've helped put in um, water tanks. And now with COVID, the, the village said they were going to be um, putting in a, a bee education center. Oh, and then with, co- and with COVID, the people said, what we really need is the money to put in another classroom for the kids so mm-hmm. we can get them more socially distant. Yeah, I have so, a friend that's over, I think he's in Kenya, honestly, I mean, I interview him for this thing. He's, like, dedicated his life completely to doing that. He's been over there for years. Like, what, what does he do over there? He works in, like, a school getting kids, street kids education. It's like a thing. Just oh, that's awesome. and just kind of he's been over there forever his name's Matt Orcutt he grew up out in San Geronimo right by the golf course and uh uh-huh. he's best friends of my or really good friends of my little sister and they're younger I babysat him for a little while and now he, he's over there he comes <laughs> back every once in a while I believe he's in Kenya Nice. And, and yeah. he wanted to, he, he when he was here, we were talking about getting him all into doing bee stuff too, because he's like, yeah, we want to do bee stuff at the school. And I was like, oh yeah, yeah. I gave him a book and told him whatever. You know, let me know. I can connect him with uh, you know, remind me, and I'll give you the um, Marianne's email address. And there's also a doctor over in the East Bay who goes to Kenya regularly and helps beekeepers there and works with beekeepers there. Um, and then, yeah, and then there's that. yeah, and then there's um, bees for development and. The North American director is a friend of mine, and the main director, she's in Wales. She's a great gal. They do amazing work. Um, mm. And they really help people get the most, not only with the training, although there's a, there's a pretty established beekeeping community and beekeeping tradition in, in East Africa, um, but what people have trouble is finding markets where they can get a premium for their products, their, their wax, which is really clean, uh, and the honey. So hmm. organizations are able to help them out. And it's it's remarkable. Like, um, you know, bees can really lift people out of poverty in those countries. So it's really. Yeah, I mean, it's got a lot of 
a lot of benefits to beekeeping. I've always been super curious about bees in Africa because of the whole, you know, thing that happened in Brazil with the Africanized bees or whatever. And well, like it's, how, it's how, totally how much more aggressive species. are they? Yeah. Are, are they aggressive over there? Um, so in some yes, some no. I mean, I kind of think of the ones that escaped from uh, the Brazil uh, uh experiment is kind of the Rambo of bees, you know, so, it yeah. was, you know, um, but yeah, it's it's just a totally different kind of beekeeping too, because people aren't necessarily like in and manipulating the hives for the most part. And, and the bees there are, they're not stationary like the European honeybees, they're migratory. So they're actually following hmm. blooms. Um, and so people will set out hives and the bees will find them and move into them. You, uh, in Kenya, it's frequently log hives or the traditional ones. Um, and so, you know, they're able to harvest honey from them, but they're not necessarily manipulating them. You know, the bees mm. are kind of left alone. And frequently they're left alone and, like, kind of hoisted up into trees. Yeah. And then when the bloom, yeah, so. you know, yeah. So it's, um, yeah, it's a totally different, it, yeah, more migratory bees. Well, we kind of uh, we kind of jumped right into the interview here. So you know, I'm going to keep, all, gonna keep yeah. all this. But let's go back to I, I want it. I want it to be like I want a little bit of the personal level on it and get into that because that's obviously cool. And I've lost <laughs> yeah. But go well, ahead. We can, start, we can... start from the beginning of Bonnie back before she knew about bees. Before I knew about bees. So, um, well, you know, just a kind of random background. Um, I, uh, I got my degree from uh, Johns Hopkins in international relations, so pretty unrelated to most things I've done in my life since school. <laughs> um, I went back to school to study horticulture at Merritt College. Um, I ended up uh, also becoming a certified arborist with National Society of Arboriculture. Um, I, I have actually lived in Africa, so we weren't so far off talking about that. Um, yeah. You know, it made a huge impact on me. When I was 17, I first went over to Kenya and then went back in Tan- to Tanzania. It was kind of hard for me. I mean, I considered living there um, because I really loved working out in the parks and with the animals. But it's really hard seeing things are, that, you know, you're one step forward and two steps back with just poaching and habitat loss. And I just, I, don't, I think psychologically yeah, I wasn't. I yeah, I, I just wasn't at a place in my life psychologically, I think, where I could take that but I really didn't know what I wanted to do so I just kept trying other things um in college I had actually worked at the Baltimore Zoo as a beekeeper and uh, with my experience with horticulture and trees and then working with primates um I ended up getting a job with the gorilla foundation working with Coco you know the sign language gorilla oh yeah 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 which is pretty amazing um that didn't work. It's a whole other story why that didn't work out. But, um, <laughs> yeah, it went back to trees and then um, met Gary. And we kind of fell in love, and it, it kind of took me away from um, working in horticulture and landscaping. Um, I ended up working with, with the family business, which was a wholesale business. And while we were doing that, um, uh Gary and I spend all of our free time in the garden, um, and we noticed that our neighbor had bees. And mm. at first, we kind of thought it was a little shocking because, you know, we're, we're in San Rafael like you, kind of densely populated. Some of the streets are pretty busy, you know, and we, we weren't sure what to think about yeah, it. Although, what else you're in right now? Yeah. Okay. And, and so, um, you know, I mean, obviously, as gardeners, we were around bees all the time, and they didn't bother us it was just different to notice like where they actually were living. 
but we pretty quickly like really got into it. Like we could see our neighbor and his daughter out, you know, in their suits and working the hives together. And we got really vested in watching the hives and we were concerned in the winter and we wouldn't see activity at them. And um, a couple of mm-hmm. years after that, we decided to get a hive. And within a week we had a second hive and uh, yeah, it was basically just obsessive from there. <laughs> and that was in 2007. Okay. So kind of jumped in with both feet. No, definitely jumped in with both feet. Um, Got really involved with some beekeepers. And at that time, there was really a big push to try to do treatment-free beekeeping and trying to figure out a way to do local breeding. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, that really kind of took off in earnest in 2009. But as a voluntary effort, we were really having a tough time trying to figure out how to pull it together because there's a lot of moving parts to that. Yeah. Um, and so possibly in a moment of insanity, um, Gary and I decided because the wholesale business was changing and going more in the direction of technology and Internet sales, which Gary and I are not tech people. So the idea of doing that just really didn't appeal to us. Um and so we just kind of decided to take a bit of an early retirement from that business and uh, turn it over to Gary's son, and um, who was into that kind of stuff and enjoyed the challenge of, you know, learning new things um, and figuring mm-hmm. out new ways to do the business. And Gary and I started breeding bees. So um, the first bees we sold here in Marin uh, was in the spring of 2012. Hmm, that's pretty quick. It, it was it was pretty quick, but like I said, it got pretty obsessive, and we really reached out and um, were working with uh, commercial beekeepers whenever we could, you know, just volunteering and mm-hmm. working with other beekeepers and just reading whatever we could do, whatever we could read, starting to go to conferences and just get information wherever we could get it. Yeah, it's very and, easy to get obsessive about bees. I- this will be two years I've had in May. It'll be two years I caught a swarm that's still alive. The queen's in my yard now. So I'm going to have to stand her on back. And, yeah, it takes over your life. <laughs> it does. And, and, you know, you could spend many, many lifetimes and still not know all there is to know about bees and beekeeping. So Yeah, yeah. it's true. It's true. You feel like you feel like you're like, it's like, oh, I'm really got a hang of this. And then all of a sudden it's like completely doing something that you didn't think would happen. And <laughs> I have very little experience, but I, you know, I dive into things head on. So um, it's fun. <laughs> yeah. There's, there's a joke that um, if you have any question, ask a second year beekeeper, cause they know everything. <laughs> exactly. You feel so confident. Like I, like I felt like I, yeah, it's, it's, it definitely has been humbling and, and also just, yeah, you learn a lot. Like I remember hearing you initially saying how much you learn about nature and all that to notice. And I was like, yeah, you know, that'll be, that, that is true. I can see that happening. I didn't really notice it until this year so much. Um, but yeah, you really notice all these things about like how, when certain things are blooming and how the, like, activity picks up all these things like I remember that first class I took with you and like you said a bunch of things I was like oh what the hell does that really mean you know (laughs) and then you see and you watch and you start to you start to understand a little and then the second year you see a bit more and you're like oh yeah you know I'm I'm really glad a hive made it through for me you know because I get to really see the transition you know yeah no no it's it's huge and it's 
Yeah, I mean, like you said, I, I mean, as I mentioned, I, I worked with plants and animals in one custody or another for much of my life. I mean, even when I was younger, even before I went to college, um, you know, I worked on ranches in the summer and always had animals around me and was always outside. But, man, keeping bees just brought it to, like, such a micro level, you know, just mm. really the, the, the knowledge um, and just the attention. So it's been pretty amazing. Yeah, it kind of slows things down, like... It's weird. Like, I remember you saying something about, oh, yeah, you could hear a drone coming in. I was like, yeah, right. And I was like, oh, I, was like, oh, I can hear this drone coming in. There's a bunch of drones. And they all landed. And I was like, oh, look at that. You can. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. Because it's, uh... so anyways, um, keep going on. You know, I mean, that's pretty, that's pretty quick. And then now you're, you're breeding queens and stuff. And yeah, so the you know the, the originally the the reason that we started Bonnie Bee and Company was to have a source of local bees um, to really do those moots. So mm-hmm. it's been uh, it's been almost well it has been it's been nine years now since we first started Bonnie Bee. It was the fall of 2011 when we first started working on it, and you know it's it's really um, just kind of evolved over the years. We are still breeding um, queens and selling nukes. But we're really turning more away from, um, you know, wanting to sell as many as we can to really trying to find a way to educate beekeepers as much as possible for how they can make their own increases, for how they can all be part of this so that there's not a dependency on us to be that source where we can all just, you know, keep upping our game as a community of beekeepers. Yeah, there's only so many places you can be to help out, and if everyone takes it upon themselves, it's going to be a better better bee population, yeah. And it it really is amazing how many people, um, you know, I know when I I, I did a survey for a while, a bee census survey, and less than 43% back in 2009 um, of bees were sourced here locally, and by locally, most of those were um, swarms, you know, it wasn't even so much mm-hmm. people doing their own colony division, and yeah. it, it was it was primarily swarms that people were getting if they were getting them locally. And a lot of people, uh, many people, the primary way they were getting bees were it was packages. So you know, coming off of commercial beekeepers and the almond pollination. Yeah. So and and those queens, you know, especially then it's changing, but were bred for very different reasons that what the, the local beekeepers were wanting them for, which was you know, bees that were less dependent on humans for controlling mites and the diseases they vector, and where the bees had some of that, their own natural tolerance or resistance. Um, so now, um, the last, last survey I did in, 19, in uh, 2017, over 85% of the bees were sourced here locally within the county. And it was mm. not only catching swarms and baiting for swarms, because bait hives have become a much bigger thing. So rather than just running around after swarms, setting up attractive yeah. nest cavities and letting the bees move themselves in. But now many more people are, there's, you know, when, in 2012, um, Dave Peterson was selling a few nukes locally, you know, about, I think, 10 or 12 a year. Um, but now there's uh, four or five different people, including Gary and I, that are selling nukes. So that's, yeah. that's a local source. More and pe- more people are making their own split, which is awesome. And there's even more people, you know, back then it was pretty much just Dan Stralka who's raising his own queens, but there's several people raising their own queens and sharing those queen cells locally too. So we've really upped mm-hmm. our game as a, as a county, which is awesome. Um, kind of the pros and cons of the, you know, the um, increased popularity of beekeeping. 
back in 2005, there was like 25 numbers of women beekeepers and probably, I estimate, four to five times the number of beekeepers than are actual mem- just members of the Marin Beekeepers. So mm-hmm. maybe 100, 125 beekeepers back then. Now we have about 350 members of the Marin Beekeepers um, and probably closer to about 2,000 beekeepers in the county. Yeah, I run, I run into a few. I'm blind. Yeah. So I, yeah, it's, it's definitely... Definitely okay, popular so, in this area. Which is great because, it, you know, going back to the whole nature thing and just really making people more sensitive to what's happening around them, that's that's a real bonus. On the mm-hmm. negative side, it's a lot of bees, so it, it puts increased pressure. I mean, it's just like, are you living in a rural area or a city? And what does that mean for spread of, you know, just common colds and viruses and everything else? Um, yeah. So same thing with our bees. Plus, it puts a lot of pressure on our native bee populations. Um, you know, which mostly are solitary. So, I mean, if you've got, you know, thousands of honeybee colonies that can each have 60,000 or more bees in each of them at the peak of the year versus, you know, native bees that just have, you know, a mom and some babies. And those moms don't necessarily meet those babies, you know, but very small small numbers, um, there, there can be problems. So, yeah. so it's what do you, lots of What do you stress. think is the biggest? You know, one of my questions is about challenge for, you know, yourself learning and then also for the bees, you know, like I, I, that just popped up in my head. But um, like, what was one of the biggest challenges for yourself? But also, you know, obviously for the bees, it's going to kind of go hand in hand, I would think, with all the stuff out there. Dealing with um, them. Yeah, I, I have one of the biggest challenges, I guess, well, it's the learning curve, but also I, you know, I have always been one of those people that wants to be able to master something. Like you get mm-hmm. it, and you just take that knowledge and you go with it. Yeah. <laughs> and and bee, bee, beekeepers have, beekeeping has made me a little bit more humble and just a little more laid back and just accepting that you you can't necessarily do that. <laughs> you know, it just um, you know things are constantly in flux and there's new diseases and new things happening and just different cool. changes of the weather. So it's it, beekeeping just keeps on changing you know i mean yeah. you have to be constantly aware you can't just like kind of rest on your laurels that you know how it's going to happen <laughs> you know, so, yeah. yeah i mean i've done a few things and i would say maybe two of them actually turned out how i thought they would when i you know did stuff in the hive and they're like hey, i want to try again to do this you know and they would never do it pretty much. They, you know, build somewhere else or build in a way I didn't want them to build. They have a top bar hive now. That's what I'm actually thinking about. I, I one swarm in one side and they built really nice and beautiful. It's great. I was like, wow, it's nice. And then I put another one on the other side and they went completely across the four bars that were <laughs> yeah, in there. They were like, um, you know, so I had to rip, they rip were, it all. They were, they were artists. <laughs> yeah, they they looked at these lines above on the roof and said, I don't want to attach to that. But it'll make good cross sections, you know. I'll make an X on that. <laughs> I, well, you know, the first time that um, we let the bees, um, you know, we wanted to let them make their own comb, own comb and foundation in our Langstroth frames. And so we put a we put a box, a super with 10 frames with no foundation, just little guides across the top. And they yeah. literally just went horizontal across the entire box, the entire way. And it exactly. was like, you know, either we cut it apart, but it was the wrong time of year to do that kind of damage, <laughs> or we yeah. just leave them alone until they eventually leave that box, 
you know, for winter, they get into a smaller cluster or the colony dies. <laughs> and that's basically what happened. We waited a few years until they could make it, and then we were able to purge that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, it's it's interesting. Yeah, it is. Um, yeah, with the top bar, you cannot do that, though. But with the link strap, you could. You can get it and move to another box pretty easily. <laughs> the other one, it's like, you just. I guess you can move them to a straight bar somehow and then just let them have that. I did think about doing that, but, you know, usually you want to rip it apart and get it lined up. It was a spring time still, and I did that, and then they, they left. They didn't like that, you know. I had done that. They were like, you know what? There's enough forage out there. We're going to move to a different place. <laughs> yeah, we don't like you. <laughs> yeah, yeah they, were, they were like, we like the place, and then you came in and ripped it apart. The ones on the other side are doing great, though. It's really cool. You open up a little window, and you can see in there. It's fun. <laughs> yeah, it's fun. Yeah. So, um, all right. So, is uh, passing knowledge on something that's important to you? I feel like it is, considering I see what you're doing. Oh, oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I, and I feel like it's kind of, it's gone full circle with me with my interest in plants, you know, um, and getting more involved through the bees in the plants, but in a, in a totally different perspective than I had previously to them. Um, so it's kind of just tied in everything that I, that I've done in my life, which I love. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, it's, a, it's just a lot of fun. So, you know, as far as our company, I mentioned it evolving, um, I always did a little bit of consulting and basically private lessons. Um, and most of my clients, it's not high, we do hive management, but most of my clients are actually tend to are, like to be there when I'm working their hives. And it's yeah. more like they enjoy private lessons all the time. Like so, and I, I love that. I love passing on, you know, what people have passed on to me. Um, and I just feel really passionate about like any way that we can make things better with our environment, you know, the individual choices we all make collectively really do add up. So each person realizing how important their contributions are, you know, just around their own homes, um, that, that means a lot to me. Yeah. Yeah, it definitely is really important. It's, um, what, like, what are some examples you can point to, too, in terms of, you know, that made you more in tune with nature that, you know, you directly can correlate with having bees in your backyard? And, you know, you manage, um, how many hives do you manage? Um, in total between ours and clients that we work with, either that we manage or that we, you know, do, do regular, uh, lessons with, it's about 300. Okay. That's um, a lot of work. Oh God, it's, you know, Gary likes to say he semi-retired and never worked harder. You know, I mean, we're finally just kind of slowing down from the B season and, um, for much of this year, even with COVID, it, you know, it didn't slow us down because the bees weren't slowed down. Um, mm-hmm. So we work seven days a week for about, you know, five to seven months out of the year, depending on kind of weather-wise and everything else what's going on. So it's it's definitely hard physical work. My back, my body is just racked right now. My back, <laughs> you know, my my body usually tells me, okay, it's definitely time to have a few months to slow down. <laughs> yeah, you got to get more of your clients to have horizontal and top bar hives. It's really easy. Oh my gosh! <laughs> yeah, except if they want us to move those. Moving those yeah. is not fun. <laughs> exactly. The mo- you can't. It has to be stationary. It's, yeah. it's just yeah. It, but it is really it's it's so different feeling. You know, like yeah, you really you really do not disturb the bees as much, which yeah. is nice. Um, no, there's you know all the systems yeah are, all have their pros and their cons. 
you know. Um, but definitely the top bars. <laughs> One of them is is they're a lot gentler on that. Yeah, they are, and it, there's it's kind of the the comb is really pretty. I was like, I actually could not believe how beautiful they made some of the straight how straight some of them were you know obviously every once in a while they decide they want to do their b thing and make one a little bit lumpy in a spot but um it was cool i was was stoked to have that happen um so what kind of like classes and maybe courses have you taken for beekeeping do you have any apprentices or whatever or uh um not necessarily apprentices but uh any mentors? Yeah, that's the word I'm looking for. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, really the three big mentors we've had are, um, and it's, you know, I guess some people find it kind of ironic because they're all over the board, but um, Randy Oliver, you know, was helpful from the very beginning, um, very supportive of what we were doing. We would go up to Grass Valley and um, volunteer um, our time working with he and his sons. Um, got to go out to Almonds with him, um, which was great, and and also just, you know, being having him there to answer questions and his great website just to go for information. Um, but he's very supportive of new beekeepers and sharing his knowledge. Um, Kirk Webster has been a, another huge mentor and as you know, the pretty much the patriarch of treatment pre beekeeping in America. We were absolutely thrilled um, when we were able to go and, and work with him in Vermont. We went um, couple different summers not for the whole summer but at different times um one time to help him harvest all of his honey so it was great seeing all those apiaries and um, his whole setup on a farm which is amazing um and then also went back and did a, a, a short course with four other people um while he was raising queens so got to go through his whole process with him um so, so that was great um and then Really, Tom Seeley. Tom Seeley, just his research and looking at things from a bee perspective, just really appreciate him as a person and all of his knowledge. So, yeah, those three have really been our our major mentors. Yeah, Tom. I like Tom's writing, his, his books. I want to go out and do the bee the bee hunting thing. Yeah, on like Point Reyes or something. <laughs> But but also, I mean, there's so many amazing people in beekeeping. I mean, Marianne Frazier, um, I've known her yeah. for a really long time. Um, she's been she's really helpful and is a, is and is amazing. Um, did you get to participate in last night's meeting? She's no. She's in Kenya. No, yeah. I, I wish I had actually. Are they recording them? Um, I did record it last night. I did not ask her for permission yet, so I have not posted it. A lot okay. of the researchers that don't want to be recorded, so no, what are you gonna do? Okay. Um, but yeah, um, Marla Spivak at University of Minnesota. Marla's amazing, and um, you know her commitment to. Well, I love her research with propolis, um, as well as her commitment to bee lawns and just like planting. Um, uh, Diana Samatero, I have a great respect for her. Her book, um, uh, the Beekeeper's Handbook, has been in continuous publication for over 40 years. And, and I really, it's a book I always recommend to beginners. Um, I like it because it doesn't just give you one way to look at a problem. It gives you a few different alternatives for how you can solve, look at or solve the same problem. So I, li- hmm. I like that as opposed to just being like, do it this way, you know. Yeah, it's so definitely beekeeping is like that. There's so many ways of doing things. Obviously, you got to keep them, you know, there's the rules, right? I'll let you tell the rules of, of, of beekeeping. Do a little quick kind of layman thing of, of, of beekeeping for people because there's 
bunch of flooring flooring guys and construction workers are probably going to listen to this. So, um, <laughs> well, I don't know rules. Like, I, I mean, that that's the hard thing. I mean, they say you ask two beekeepers the same opi- uh, question and you get three different opinions. So, um, yeah, rules. But like, there are some hard rules. I know you told me some that are obviously they're obvious, but you know, it's simple. Like the thing with beekeeping is that obviously it's simple, but it's also very complicated. Yeah. Because what do they need? They need what? Well, they well they need oh okay so as far as like what they need well they need a nest cavity so that's basically picking what kind of like you you talk about you like top bars I mean some people swear by Langstroth highs and then Warres and the flow and you know I mean you've got all these different styles so Mm -hmm. um, but they need a nest cavity. Um, Mikel Teal who's just up north of us and he he hollows out logs to put them into so. You know, people do woven skets. So everything in beekeeping, it's like I said, it's a lot of shades of gray. It's, um, you know, there's pros it and cons. It needs to be basically dry. Good, it, dry is the most flow. important. Yeah. That is the most good, important, for sure. Um, dry, good ventilation. And, boy, when you think about how they nest naturally in a tree cavity, you know, as warm as possible so that they mm-hmm. don't have to um, use all their honey to, to keep it warm because that cluster I guess for me, the thing I, I always tell beekeepers is to keep in mind that, you know, let 92 degrees be your guiding. Oh, it clicked out there. Hello? Yeah, I'm here. Do you hear me? Yeah, 92 degrees. Start again from there. Okay. So the 92 degrees, you know, anything, they, they've got to keep their brood, the larva, particularly the open larva, which in a place like Marin, we have such a mild winter, they tend to have it year-round, even though the Mm -hmm. size of the population and the brood cluster is going to vary. They're going to have it year-round. So 92 degrees is what they have to keep that larva. Um, And so everything you're doing, you know, if you think about it in terms of 92 degrees, are you making it harder or easier for them? So, for example, this time of year, don't open the box unless you have a really good reason why. Because even if it's a warm winter day, say it's 60 degrees, you're still no. releasing over 30 degrees of their heat. And if that's a small colony, maybe they'll never be able to get that heat back to And you're ripping apart their, their, their propolis seal they've so exactly. put in place. Exactly. So then obviously, you know, another thing they need, they're going to need food. So are they in a place where there, there is ample pollen and nectar? Um, what are the seasons where you're putting them? And are you going to need to help them through? Like in Marin, I always tell beginners, the key is really getting them through their first winter because our bee season is really February to May. Um, when you think about when we've got a lot of flowers out there for nectar, which is important for comb building. Mm-hmm. Um, once our hills brown up, the, basically the comb building is over for the year. So what they've got is what they've got. Um, and you may have to feed them to help them not only get their house set up, their, their wax built, but also to have enough food to get through winter. Yeah. Um, and then another thing they need is water. You know, I mean, they, they, they need water, whether it be summer or winter. Probably going to go through more of it during summer. Um, they can take advantage of some of the condensation in their hive in the winter. But in the summer when it's hot, a big colony would go through up to a gallon of water. So yeah. those, are, those are the They'll basics. Definitely go through. Yeah. That's it. That's what I mean by it being pretty simple. Like when you look at what the hard, fast rules, that they have to have, you set that up for them. There's variabilities, like you said, you're trying to make it easier for them to get to that 90 degrees and maintain it. But 
how they're going to create that home and what they're going to do, where they're going to be in that box and what you, you open it and look and think you're going to see is not always what you, you know, unless you looked in there yesterday, you pretty much don't know what's going to happen. You know? Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. I've let some time go by and thought the hive was healthy and opened it up and like, it's gone, you know? Right. Like, hmm. And, you know, get all the honey out of there as much as you can and, and they're having a lot more challenges these days, you know. I mean, I hear stories of, you know, 100 years ago um, when, you know, basically if you got some bees, put, put them in a box, they're probably going to swarm, you know, whatever. But as long as they had enough food, um, they went went into winter and over 90% of them made it out of winter and just kept doing their thing. And maybe you check them a few times a year. But, you know, yeah. between the varroa mites, which arrived here about 30 years ago, that parasite that evolved with Asian honeybees, um, that's been disastrous. They've, you know, the speed of transportation meant that it got everywhere in the U.S. really quickly. And it also, um, they vector diseases, and those diseases, these new novel diseases, just keep arriving and getting spread really quickly. And, boy, before they can get over the last one, they've got another one to deal with. And now yeah. we're dealing with problems, I mean, with like with our wildfires um, this year. Well, for the last several years, even without wildfires and the smoke, for some reason, the queens just don't seem to be living as long. Um, mm. And sometimes we're having more trouble. We seem to be having less um, successful made out of our queens. Um, just kind of. What slightly... are you looking for out of a queen, like three years? I, well, I mean, that would be awesome. I, I'm happy if they go a full year to two years. But, I mean, we mm. see some that seem well-mated that, you know, are, are getting superseded before the end of the season. Or just are failing altogether, don't have enough semen come drone layers um the smoke compounds that problem we had a lot of the smoke this season when um colonies uh, during a time of year when colonies might be superseding queens in preparation for winter and um very few successfully were able to return from mating flights so i don't know that particulate smoke was that having were bees having trouble navigating because of that was it that the drones just were having more difficulty smelling and finding those queens? Um, I'm not really sure what the answer to that is. All I know is that yeah, I lost I saw a colony. Lot of failures. Yeah, I lost a colony like kind of like mid to late summer, and I harvested some honey, and I probably left out too much honey, and attracted some robbers, and the robbing situation started. Oh. And I got I got it to stop. Um, actually set up like a little sprinkler thing and basically made it rain for about 20 minutes every once in a while. And eventually the bees left. I was like, that worked. It just took like a couple of days. But then when I opened it up, um, totally empty pretty much. You know, like there was yeah. a few bees, there were a few bees that I had trapped in there because I shut, I shut the whole thing down. But they had, I look and I, you know, took a whole hive apart and, um, there was a bunch of like queen cells. You can tell they were trying to make queen all of a sudden. I feel like they like lost her all of a sudden. I didn't notice, you know. Uh-huh. It was a strong colony when I got it. It was a big swarm. It was like the size of two uh, two basketballs. Wow, and nice. It was big, and it made a lot. They made a lot of honey, and then just hit a wall. At some point, they lost their queen, and I didn't notice because it just you know the traffic didn't really change or anything. Just I wasn't really going to that high very much. I decided I was going to go in like towards the end of the summer and just take out as much honey as I wanted to take and could take. And but time by the time I did that and figured out what was going on and looked, I would, like looked deep down in the hive where you could see where they would make new queens. 
I could tell they had lost her at least, you know, a month and a half ago because they'd been running around trying to make a queen. Yeah. And, you know, it was weird. So I feel it, like it happens. <laughs> yeah, I feel like they got to some critical mass point, and a lot of bees just left. In that, and when I went in and took honey, you know, and they just were like, this, you know, I don't know, it was, it was strange because if I had looked much deeper in the hive when I initially went in to get the honey, I just took it off the top. Um, I would have figured it out right then that it, the hive was dead. I didn't figure it out till a couple of days later when I got the robbing to finally stop. Mm. And then I went all the way down to the hive and was like, huh, it's like I found a queen cell that had been opened, you know, had like a tin can jar, little thing sitting there. And uh, then a bunch of little not great queen cells. It was strange. Yeah, it's uh, it's tough being a bee. <laughs> there's, a, yeah. there's a lot of things that happen. And, you know, those old swarms are coming, the swarms are coming with old queens. So it's not uncommon for them to replace their queens and, you know, depending where you are, the um, percentage of successful made out that I've observed here in Marin is somewhere between 35 and 90 percent, depending where you are. So even mm. in the best of situations, there's still, a, you know, a chance that they're not coming back. Yeah. So. Yeah, exactly. So I think they, you know, probably tried to supersede her at some point, and that queen died on a mating trip, and just, so I don't know, I can't put it together, you know. And we also kill queens too, <laughs> you know. That's exactly. What that's what that's what I thought I had done the year before when I went in there. I thought like I was like all into beekeeping first year, and I wanted to go in and check it all the time, you know. And I swear I killed the queen at some point because the hive was all strong, and all of a sudden it was gone. I was like, what? I, I go in sometimes with clients, and and I'll I'll look and I'll say, um, were you in here about 16 days ago? And they'll say, how did you know that? Uh, because you killed your queen, <laughs> you know, yeah. you can just tell by the timing of the brood and where, where everything's at, just when when, when it happens, <laughs> you know. So yeah. Uh, yeah. But when you get when you get the whole thing flowing real nice, and you got to, you know, like I got a second year queen now that I can tell she got made it really well because she's made at least six swarms. Wow. Because um, I split I split her intentionally twice, and then she made four more just on her own. And two of them I have, and one of them went away. Was that top R one that decided didn't like me ripping it and tone apart? So, but it was yeah. It's, it's, she's a good queen. I, I mean, I don't know. I'd like to get her checked out, but I, she's definitely laying a lot of eggs and made a lot of colonies and made a lot of honey. So, Sounds like a good one. Yeah, it was, it was like the first swarm I ever caught. And I'm pretty sure she was a virgin because she came back and I saw her come back from a flight and it was craziness for a couple of days outside in the front of the hive. Like, <laughs> you could tell something was happening, you know, and then all of a sudden it calmed down and then tons of eggs, a few, you know, a few nice. later. Yeah. So, it was, it was fun. Um, let me look at how much time we have here. All right. All right. 40 minutes. So I'm going to ask another question before I ask the last one here. Um, well, is there anything that you want to go into that you find like the most gratifying about what you do or something else? <laughs> right. Um, no, I mean, like I was saying, I just really enjoy working with people and just helping um, 
to kind of help see people see a different side of the environment and the choices we make. I mean, we t- we touched a little bit on that earlier. And kind of um, I, I was thinking about another question just as we were talking about, like, my, my past and my education. And, you know, I got into bees after I was uh, studying horticulture. Um, and, and I should say I've been a lifelong gardener. I mean, I come from generations of gardeners, so I've always been very much into being outside but before bees, I had a very different take on, you know, gardening and landscaping around homes. Um, it was very much more uh, about what you can do in, a, instead of what you should do. Um, mm. So, you know, the idea about just aesthetics and kind of controlling the, the yard around you, but especially through bees, realizing how little those choices actually support habitat and support the life that supports us. And so it made me really conscious as I drive around and look at landscapes at, at, at seeing how most of our choices in the urban area um, are really high, high input and low output. And so it's really changed how I see, um, yeah, landscaping and, and plant choices, um, definitely more towards native plants that support not only our honeybees, but support um, the native pollinators that evolved with them and rely on them. Mm-hmm. Um, and thinking very much about, like, how can I reduce, um, you know, how much water inputs I use while increasing the outputs and increasing the sustainability of, of you know, my little slice of land. So, um, yeah, I mean, w- when I first went to school for horticulture, I was very attracted to Japanese gardens. And um, while it was very aesthetically pleasing, um, you know, especially in our climate, um, those plants aren't really supporting anything, you know, anything for life, but are very, you know, I mean, they, a lot of those plants like different kinds of soils, they want more water. Um, yeah, so it's really just a biodiversity dead zone, very pretty, but not supporting anything. And, and I just think there's so many of us on the planet now that these individual choices that we make are so critical and do make a difference. Yeah. Yeah, it makes it, it'll make a huge difference. I mean, just yeah, you're basically trying to force a plant to grow outside of its environment, so you have to do a lot. And some will naturally adapt because, you know, Mediterranean climate is one thing. Like, you know, a lot of plants from Australia will grow great here, all things, you know, things like that. But even though the plants might grow great, they may not be supporting anything. And the exactly. other thing is... The other thing is that a lot of the plants that we grow, um, even though the species themselves, I mean, take um, Leptospermum, Manuka. So a lot of people have heard of Manuka honey. Well, mm-hmm. the plant responsible for that is commonly grown here. It does really well in our, you know, various soils and with very little water. Leptospermum scoparium, you can go to pretty much any nursery and get it. However, most of the ones that are grown and sold in nurseries are ones that um, are hybrids, like really cultivated that basically mm-hmm. couldn't exist without human intervention, which means that pollinators aren't really that interested in them. Um, the reason they can't exist without human intervention is because the pollen and nectar is frequently held too tightly or inaccessible to pollinators. So mm-hmm. the, 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 the species really couldn't exist without us, <laughs> you know, without the human side. Um, example, we have a pomegranate in our yard, 120-plus years old. Has never fruited, will never fruit. Would not be in existence if it wasn't grafted. Um, nothing can get anything out of that. So now the straight species of pomegranate, however, um, yeah, bees and other pollinators love it. Mm-hmm. 
and it could fruit provide food for us. <laughs> you know, so you know a lot, but a lot of people don't realize that they they look around and see green and see flowers and think that just because they see that it's supporting life and it that just couldn't be further from the truth. Yeah, you really have to have a lot of forethought to the, a plant you put in the ground if it's going to be around for you know more than a year in particular, but even you know just a, just a annual plant. I actually have a, a new plant that the list is on my website, and it's um, mostly natives and also just superfoods, and not just for honeybees, although pretty much anything that's going to support the native bees is also going to support our non-native European honeybees. Um, but, yeah, um, just better choices that we each make could make a huge difference. I'm, I'm ramping up um, a, a program and a new website right now called 10 by 10 plus 10, and the concept is, just like we've been discussing, you know, the individual choices we each make collectively do add up, and it's challenging people to create a minimum 10 feet by 10 foot place in your yard for pollinators hmm. um, and donate $10 to a habitat restoration project. And you think everyone can do that? That's not like a huge ask, the 10 foot by 10 foot or $10, but it makes yeah. a huge difference. And can you imagine collectively if everyone did that, what the possibilities could be for, you know, reestablishing habitat corridors and um, pollinator, you know, corridors? Because many of our local pollinators, um, our natives, don't even necessarily travel that far. So Mm -hmm. um, it's very difficult if you have islands um, that are more than a few hundred yards apart. Hmm. So so there's my soapbox. (laughs) No, I mean, I, I think it's all great stuff, honestly. It gets, gets me thinking a lot. It's probably why I'm sitting here all, all silently like, hmm. <laughs> yeah. so, I mean, you have that in your own backyard. I mean, I've seen the yeah, university yeah, and all the, mean, all the flying critters that are in there and cruising around. Yeah, it's, it's something I've always, I've always loved being out in the yards and growing. I don't know if I've ever, I don't know. I'm, I'm not super uh, methodical about how I'm going about it. I just do a lot of it. You know, and, 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 you know, my wife loves flowering plants, so it wins out. We have a lot of, a lot of native flowering plants. Right. It's great. Beautiful. We have, always have flowers in our yard, so it's nice. Yeah, it's, um, it's just so important for all these critters. And, you know, I mean, when you look at I was reading a Xerxes Society report um, about the, the number of monarchs that returned to overwintering grounds, and... Last year was thoroughly depressing at under 30,000. They think it's going to be under 11,000. So, I mean, we're talking about, like, hmm. the potential extinction of the monarch butterfly. And I don't know about you, but when I grew up, they were everywhere. I, I, I remember seeing them a lot when I was younger, not actually, like, um, trying to figure out how many there were. And then now I do. Now I notice when I see one. And I've seen a few each year. We get at least three or four to our yard. I, I, I get some of the eggs and I you know, put them in a little thing and have you do their whole process and let them go. Because, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, I think it was like 3% of the eggs that the monarch lays actually will make it to being a butterfly. Just cause oh, that's get like eaten. most of egg. Yeah, that's they like get most eaten. Egg yeah. yeah, tasty little treat. Well, and yeah. they specifically need, their young, their larvae need milkweed. Um, that's the yeah. sole food. And specifically what they need are the native milkweeds. You know, I know, and that's a huge problem because honestly, that that tropical one is everywhere. Like, yeah. you look, like that's that's another thing I know. You know, sorry, you know, noticing with nature when you get into it, but yeah, it's like 
that tropical milkweed is everywhere. And I've heard if you cut it all the way back each year, because it, it's in my yard and I can't get it to not grow, honestly. Yeah. Um, and but I heard if you cut it back every winter after it's been doing its thing, then when it grows back, it's fresh and green. And it doesn't have some. There's something that they have an issue with with it not being well, one of one of the fungus that grows on it. Well, well, also it um, blooms too long, and so they don't go to overwintering grounds. They just stay. yeah, yeah, exactly. They, yeah, that was one of the reasons for cutting it down too, so they don't they don't keep seeing it and stay too long. You're right. Yeah. Because yeah. the other one dies back. Right. My little sister has a whole bunch of the native one in her yard. She was about to rip it all out. I was like, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's funny. I'm like, you're lucky that it's growing here. Just let it keep going. Yeah, take some clippings. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The aphids love it, so she's like, I don't want it. And I'm like, just leave it. Yeah, but the the uh, ladybugs love the aphids. So exactly, you know, that's, that's what I frequently, said. Frequently, yeah, if you if you leave that long enough, then it just reaches its own balance. <laughs> you know. Yeah, yeah. You yeah. have to. Um, there's a great documentary. It's like the smallest little farm or something. Did you see that? Oh yeah, yeah. It was yeah, absolutely yeah. It's great. Yeah, biggest yeah, little farm. That. Biggest <laughs> little farm. That's it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All, All right. right. Well, I'm gonna ask you the last question here because I gotta run off and do some flooring. Yeah, you stuff. do. Um, and it's it's a, it's the legacy question. It's how do you, how do you want people to remember you? Oh, um, interesting. I never I think about really it a lot. About that. Really? I, I think I thought about my whole life. I almost saw my dad die when I was eight years old, and I would say that I asked myself this question more than I like to ask myself the question. <laughs> yeah. I've, oh, wow. I've never really – I I guess I, – I, um, maybe, maybe I'd like to be remembered that I tried to leave the world a little better place than I found it. <laughs> Although I, I wish it would, I found it in a better place because that's kind of a weird answer. I think like the Earth has a had its own thing going on, but um, yeah, yeah. I guess I hope I contributed to making it a little more sustainable. Yeah, I think that that's key. Just be kind to each other and be kind to the Earth, which is people forget about that. I think. If you go yeah. onto the um, Be Audacious uh, website, like um, some of the outputs from the 2016 conference, um, Tom Seeley and Leah Sharaskin shared. Um, well, they their in, their interviews were kind of pushed together, and Leah's talking about how um, you know bees know how to like make the world a more beautiful place. You know, they're not consuming; they're creating constantly, whereas humans are creating. And wouldn't it be a beautiful thing if humans could Humans are do, consuming. Exactly, consuming where bees yeah. are actually creating. You know, they're pollinating. They're, they're leaving more behind than, than was there before. Um, and I true. think that's kind of a beautiful way to think about it. So. And they really, yeah. like, they, they hand off the baton so beautifully as, as a species, you know. It's like yeah. it's all about getting to that next swarm, you know. Yeah. Are we strong enough to multiply? Yeah, we are. Let's do it. Are we not? Let's no. Let's let's protect our our situation. Yeah. yeah. So. All right. Well, I think that sums up the interview. Well, thank you so much, Chris, for taking your yeah. time and being interested. Yeah. No, I'm I'm nutty about bees, honestly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I have to admit it. I I have to hold it back because I can feel it would take over my life. I have, I, I have a I have a theory. I think that they um, 
that, you know, bees, they've been around a lot longer than we have, and I, I think they have some kind of mind control. And if you let them in, that's it. It's over. Yeah, no, I, <laughs> I agree. I'm, I'm, doing, I'm just doing their bidding at this point. <laughs> yeah, I, to- I totally agree. And, 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 and yeah, no, I'm, I'm just grateful I'm not afraid of insects because I, you know, wouldn't do it. But it's, it's fun. Gary's motioning to me. I guess our our client is here to pick up her honey, so um, I'm going to have to run. But thank you so much, Chris. Have a wonderful day, and happy holidays. You too. Take care. You too. Bye. Bye.